<laughs> the struggle of the proletariat. It's like Bridgerton, but anti-capitalist. And it was a surprise holiday read. If Goldie Hawn hasn't pretended to have it, I don't want it. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, already ready for second breakfast. And I'm James Earl, lacking in common sense, but making up for it in audacity in Milan, Italy. And this month, we're reading 10 Things That Never Happened by Alexis Hall. And just a quick spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about the whole book, not pieces of the book. So you should read it and then return to the podcast or just listen to the podcast because it's fun. I mean, it's been out for already like, what, like two weeks, a full month? Yeah. If you didn't read it already, then you're not in a zeitgeist. Exactly. (laughs) But if you are just following us along and you don't care about spoilers, we're about to give you a bunch because I'm going to give you a summary of what happened in the book. Give us a summary in three, two, one. So we open in Splashes and Snuggles, an amazing Bed Bath & Beyond-esque store where our main character, Sam Wise, aka Sam, works as the manager. His store is not doing well. Um, he's very Michael Scott, where he's a great sales guy, but very bad at running a business. Um, and so his boss, Jonathan, basically tells him that he needs to start actually like coming in under budget and, you know, selling more things or he's going to have to start firing people. The two of them get into the, into a fight. Jonathan accidentally corners Sam into a shower and he hits his head and then pretends to have amnesia in order to help convince Jonathan to give the store more leeway to show that they can make the numbers that they need. Um, and in this amnesia fakeness they actually end up falling in love and then shenanigans ensue and it's christmas all right your summary focused a lot on the premise and not a lot on the shenanigans (laughs) i figured we were going to discuss the shenanigans yeah yeah no obviously obviously (laughs) um did you find it to be just to start discussing the shenanigans and address the summary um did you find it to be a convincing enemies to lovers oh yeah It was really great. I loved it. Yeah, I think that recently we've had a string of books that attempted the enemies to lovers thing, but it was, it began with, oh my God, I hate him so much how cute he is when he crinkles his eyebrows Mm -hmm. or whatever. And it was like very clear that it was never going to be a true enemies thing. And it was like true, like you've got mail. Or if we're going back to our earlier podcast, Tweet Cute was a fairly convincing mm-hmm. enemies lovers because they were enemies in a different digital reality and didn't know that they were enemies. Yeah, because they were enemies for an actual reason. Yeah. It wasn't just like, oh, our personalities clash. It's like, no, we are actually on different sides of a debate and we're actually on two very widely different sides and we need to actually meet in the middle. And that debate was a reflection of their personalities. One caring about people, one caring about money. But just because you care about the bottom line does not mean you don't care about people. Yeah. Is what Jonathan would say. Jonathan Forrest. The, what's the nickname? Oh, uh, Dick Prick. (laughs) I I mean, everybody's got a different nickname for him. (laughs) His prickishness or something. No, I, I will say that in a lot of the different like rom-coms that you read, usually it's you are in the perspective of the more tightly wound person. And it's actually very rare that you're in like the lackadaisical person who's like, let's spend a million dollars. We don't, don't know what's happening. It, it was very shopaholic to me. That's a really good point. Like usually the avatar for the reader is somebody who is shocked that somebody can spend so much or that they're so bad with money or whatever. So it was nice to just see the person be like, ah, who cares? Just spend a couple extra per person. 
Right. Which is like that nice thing of like, you're in the perspective of the quote unquote, like manic pixie dream girl or the person who is causing the other person to open up their world. Yeah. And what was interesting about that is we actually don't get to find out a lot about Sam up until the very end. Sort of like a manic pixie dream girl. Right. That was really confusing. I kept on thinking that I missed something. Like I kept on thinking like I need to go back a few pages. I missed his backstory. Like what's up with his family? Yeah. And so they like hold it for the twist of the ending as like, oh, this is why he is how he is. Yeah. His family is dead. That's the other spoiler. And so you're able to understand why he's, he pushes so hard for Jonathan to further embrace his very large and chaotic family. Yeah. One of the notes I made really early on was about how um, the narrator Samwise finds family at work and like is unwilling to let people go. And... It was like a found family, but to a sort of extreme. To an extreme, like, he should fire Brian and Tiffany. Oh, yeah. Brian is the worst. Uh, I like Tiffany. Everybody needs a Tiffany just to keep you grounded so you understand the the struggle of the proletariat. For those of you who didn't read the book, Brian is someone who actively destroys merchandise. Not on purpose. He's just very careless. He's very careless. And he's not very good at sales. And so he probably shouldn't work. Tiffany is a teenager. (laughs) who yes i do love her like raw raw social justice bent but she like very rarely shows up to work but then um they still trust her to basically throw the entire company's christmas party she rocks it i kept thinking like sam why do you keep on calling a teenager for advice (laughs) this is why when at the very end he realizes that he's not very good at his job and then he gives the position to this woman claire who was under him I was like, oh, this is the correct way that this is supposed to end. Like, the way that you get under budget is to get this terrible manager out. Right, get the terrible manager out. The, the store was running well without him while he's pretending to have amnesia. I think the book did a really clever uh, job of the, the premise, because the premise is ridiculous, that he's got amnesia and is living at his boss's house and trying to protect all his company's jobs. But there was the, the scene with the housekeeper where the housekeeper's like, Oh, so you're going with movie amnesia, like with no relationship to real amnesia? He was like, "Yep, that's that's what we're doing in this book. We're doing we're doing the Hollywood amnesia." Yeah, if Goldie Hawn hasn't pretended to have it, I don't want it. Right. So ridiculous premise, really fun, but just silly. And it was a surprise holiday read. Like we were looking for maybe doing a holiday read, and we didn't even know this one was one. But it was all about Christmas. It was all about Christmas. Christmas is great because it raises the stakes where it's a time for family, which is a very stressful thing, whether you have it like Jonathan does or you don't have it like Sam doesn't have family. And also it gives you natural things like planning a Christmas party. It's very hard to like have a forced function where it's like adults have to throw a party when it's not a holiday party. For a very good climax. Yeah, multiple parties, authentic projects that need to come together with a deadline. And I think there's also an element of like Christmas is traditions. And you have to learn a lot about a character through the traditions their family has. Yeah. In fact, I thought that that was something this book did particularly well. There were a lot of scenes of eating. And every one of them I thought was extremely well done. Like, I I feel like this is also a difficult thing to do well. But... Any character eating or characters eating in a book, you have to think about it like the Last Supper. Like it's a communion and you need to pay attention to who's in charge, like what they're ordering, who's delivering things, what the negotiation is. And this one had two, it probably had more, but two that I like really remember well. 
One is the negotiation over the pizza, and two is the eating nachos. Do you remember these scenes? Yes. So for the pizza one, they go to this like fancy pizza place, and Sam wants to order a Wagyu beef pizza. <laughs> because why not? <laughs> because why not? You're here. Yeah, we got no budget. Your boss is worried that you're going to sue him because he accidentally kicked out you to like a fake coma yeah. thing. And Jonathan is like, that's a stupid purchase. No one needs a Wagyu pizza. If we're going to go half and half. My half is going to be margarita. And Sam is like, that's the most boring choice of a pizza. And I was really, I wrote this down in my notes. I was like, how dare you? Margarita pizza is not boring. No, <laughs> that's, that's the like Laura Piano hat of, of pizzas. It's like the one that you do if you're a fancy person Mm -hmm. it's like the humble one that you order because you're like trying to get the quality of the sauce and like distinguish whether or not it's a place worth eating at yeah that said as you said that samwise is like a manic pixie dream girl and this is a very manic pixie dream girl move this is like a stick your head out of the sunroof and uh, scream that the world is awesome or whatever i'm gonna order the wagyu beef like this is that kind of move yeah but i did love that he doesn't convince Jonathan to do a whole Wagyu pizza. Yeah, that Jonathan holds his own. Yeah, that is another thing that I liked about this because I think oftentimes in the Mac Dream Girl, it's like, oh, then I just like become super relaxed and Jonathan runs a business and he's good at what he does and he's got some childhood trauma he needs to unpack. But like, as a person, he knows what he likes and that's okay. Yeah. And it was really about finding compromises and how to open yourself up more, but you can still like what you like. Yeah, and the really fun thing about that whole scene is we don't even get to hear whether or not Samwise liked the Wagyu beef. Oh, yeah. Like, they never actually eat it. Like, I was taking notes on my phone about that scene, so my head was somewhere else, like, sometimes thinking about how I wanted to talk about the, like, communion element of it and the negotiation and so on. And then I finished a chapter, and I was like, wait a second, like, they never actually... He never, there was so much talk about whether or not he would like it or not. And then it just was over. And I liked that because it was like, that's, it doesn't actually matter. Like, that's not the thing that mattered. It was the negotiation and how they were perceived by the waiter. And these are the the bits that were interesting about it. Tell me about the nachos and your thoughts about the nachos. Yeah. So the nachos happen near the end of the book and they're having a difficult conversation. And it's a constant negotiation about how they're eating it. And... It's an ugly food to eat. There's people pulling more cheese off of the top and you eating it with your hands. So it's it's like a weirdly intimate food to share with somebody because there is just a lot of touching and sharing and messiness to it. And that was the point of that conversation was that they were negotiating their intimate relationship. It was messy. Nobody was going to come out of that looking pretty. And the food reflected that as a decision. And it was really well done. Yeah. And I think there's also, it, they had the interesting conversation because they were in like an American diner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there's something interesting sometimes about like then going to, again, like a third place. And then that's where you're on an equal playing field. Like I feel like nachos levels out everyone, levels out class, levels out like expectations. Yeah, right. Everybody's being messy and yeah. everybody needs to be mindful of who's taking too many jalapenos. But also, I don't know if this counts as a perfectly neutral third space because this was a childhood restaurant of Jonathan Forrest's. That's true. Like, in terms of where you eat and who's serving and so on, this is one that was, it was an emotionally loaded place for Jonathan Forrest that Samwise was entering. And so there were there were pre-loaded memories for Jonathan Forrest. And then the vanilla milkshake discussion. 
Right, where you don't want to look like you're giving fellatio to your straw. <laughs> yes, but also the fact that Jonathan orders a vanilla milkshake and Sam gives him a really hard time about it. Which is very similar to ordering a margarita. It's the pizza-iest pizza, the milkshakiest milkshake. Right, and the, the Manic Pixie Dream, Samwise, is pulling him in one direction. Yeah, exactly. So I also want to talk about um, Jonathan Forrest as Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh! It was said directly, and, and I think it becomes fairly obvious, but this being a Christmas story, we've got the mean boss that wants to fire people at the holidays. It's very clearly an Ebenezer Scrooge situation. I, I tried to, like, you know, force some associations of, like, okay, Samwise is Jacob Marley, who visits him in, like, a ghost-like situation without a memory. He's like an empty vessel who comes by and does... But I don't know, because I, I, then it breaks down when you try to find out who the ghosts of Christmas past were. And maybe it's his family. Like, it might happen. Well, I think there's a suggestion in the book about what the ghost of Christmas past is. Because there's the scene where they're trying to get Nana Pauline to join them all for Christmas. And she's like, I won't go without my boyfriend. And Jonathan suggests, uptight Jonathan, that her boyfriend can come to Christmas too, to his house. And then Sam thinks in his head... For a moment, I can't believe it's Jonathan talking. Like, I know we've shagged, and that changes things, but I didn't think my cock was the ghost of Christmas past. <laughs> okay, so we got a one-to-one parallel. It is a one-to-one parallel. Well, it's not Sam in general. It's just his penis. Right. No, I, I was thinking the ghost of Christmas past was like a conversation with Jonathan Forrest's father where he's like, you know, I got fired sometimes, and I couldn't put things together. I thought that was the ghost of Christmas past. Just like the literal <laughs> past, but no, we have we have it. No, but I I really like this modern twist on A Christmas Carol. I, I generally like the narrative arc of A Christmas Carol. It appears in a few other places, like uh, Tolstoy's Master and Man, where you have a person who wants responsibility and wants to be ambitious for good reasons, gets caught up in something, ends up losing his humanity in some way, and then at the end needs to find a, like the, the return at the end is a return to oneself. It's not like a Scrooge is transformed and all of a sudden he's empathic and he's a changed man. It's like not that he's changed. It's not that Jonathan Forrest has changed. It's that Jonathan Forrest returns to being Jonathan Forrest when he was a kid. Like the reason he wants all this stuff is to help his family. And he just like loses sight of what that actually means and then returns to it at the end. And I, I really like that as an, as an arc. It's much better than the... He was an a-hole, and now he's not an a-hole. I like much more the he had good motives, became an a-hole, because he got obsessed with the metrics of success rather than what success actually was, and then returns to himself and, like, re-understands what success means for him. Yeah. We do get, like, also, like, a bit of a ghost of Christmas future. We do end up in a cemetery at the end. That's true. This is Yeah, this is just a Christmas carol. That's really good. But it's not so on the nose. Good job, Alexis Hall. Yeah, it's not so on the nose that you realize it when you're reading it, it's only upon reflection that you're like, this was just a Christmas carol, or at least I didn't. Well, and especially one thing at the end where I'm like, okay, this guy's just quitting his job. I mean, Sam should not have his job. He's very bad at his job. But he clearly was actually a plumber previous to all of this with like his father, where it was like Becker and Son plumbing. And he decides to restart up that business, even though it's just he is and son. And I think that is like a really beautiful starting over again. Right. It's also a return to the self. He tells us that he's escaping Liverpool. 
he just takes this job to pay his bills and, and get out of Liverpool, and he's clearly running away from that traumatic experience of his of his parents passing. And then he returns to the family business and and then starts it all over again, but in Croydon this time. You know what we haven't talked about is Gollum. Yeah, the curious cat who doesn't even look like a cat. I was trying to read Gollum as a symbol the entire time, and I don't feel like I was particularly successful. Did you have any success? First, I just want to name some things as a cat owner. Yeah, tell me. Basically, they moved the cat from the flat in Sheffield into, like, Jonathan's house while uh, Sam is concussed, in quotation marks. And immediately, the cat is like, this is now my home, and Jonathan is my best friend. Said no cat ever. (laughs) Like, literally said no cat ever. If this was a real cat, he would be in a closet for at least a week or under a bed for a month. And then we would start having conversations about the cat coming out. I think cats in general, the point of cats, is they teach you to love something the way that it wants to be loved. And not how you want to love something. And I think that is like a really important lesson when it comes to how does Sam love Jonathan and how... Does Jonathan's family love Jonathan? And how does Jonathan love his family? That's really well put. That's really great. Because I was struggling with, I was like, is the cat just like a better reader of people? But like, no, that's not the point. That's like, that would be an empty symbol if that was the case. But the cat forcing Jonathan to love something on its own terms is what Jonathan needs to learn how to do. And that's like, that's what he does in the cemetery scene is when he goes there. He's like accepting that this is not going to be entirely on his terms and he can't control the situation perfectly and he's going to need to be okay with the messiness of the lie and lots of other things. I think the people who need to learn most about a cat, though, and loving things as they need to be loved, though, is Jonathan's family. Yeah. They're really crazy. I mean, I saw a lot of my Italian family in that one. They go off on tangents. Like that scene where they're talking about the Beauty and the Beast characters. And it goes off from the names to just random stuff. And they lose the thread of the conversation immediately. And that kind of thing is so frustrating for me. Like, I just want to stay on a topic and talk about the topic for an hour. And when the conversation just is at all times on the verge of breaking down into fractal parts of itself and going in many different directions, it's so frustrating. So I really feel for Jonathan Forrest in those moments. Yeah, the premise was ridiculous, but there were some moments in the book that felt like very lived in. And I felt like that entire family dynamic felt very lived in. Also, the fact that like everybody else's family is like other than your own. You're like, oh, this is so interesting. I want to have like a chat with this weirdo family. And Sam was like... Yes, let's engage. And Jonathan's like, oh my God, they're the most annoying people in the world. Yeah, no, that's classic. Classic dynamic. We talked about how this is like a Christmas story, but how is it like Lord of the Rings, given that we have a Samwise and a Gollum? That's really interesting. I like that. Uh, So we got a second master narrative with Lord of the Rings. I have no idea where to go with this. I haven't thought about it. Um, But... Do we have, like, a search for the Ring of Power? Like, is Jonathan Forrest, like, trying to find some, like, power for power's sake? I mean, a little bit. Like, like he's trying to become successful in order to undo his childhood trauma and to provide for his crazy family. And then in doing so, it corrupts him. And Samwise Gamgee is the BFF who is helping him not lose himself on the journey and let that go. I feel like there's an element here. Yeah, no, Jonathan Forrest has left the Shire, the North, the small town, went to the to the big city. I think there's also something interesting about the narrative 
taking place from Samwise's perspective, like from what is usually the best friend character, which I think speaks to the fact that like Sam basically has no character until the end when you find out his whole family is dead. And he really in many ways is there to push forward the narratives of Jonathan and then also the motivations of the, the store in Sheffield. Like he's in many ways a plot device until the end, which is taking care of other people, which is what Sam does in Lord of the Rings. That's true. How did you feel about at the end? This is a slightly different direction. Um, how did you feel about at the end when Tiffany tells Samwise that everybody thought that he might be a serial killer in the same way that the housekeeper thinks that Jonathan Forrest might be a serial killer? Because I didn't. That wasn't my read at the beginning of the novel. It also was not my read. I was also very shocked by that line. I guess the point is that there's Jonathan Forrest who is too distant and that's creepy. And then there's the too forgiving, too kind, and that can also be creepy and it's in a separate way. And that they were occupying these two poles and they needed to negotiate over nachos as to how to meet in the middle. Yeah, I think there was definitely an element of that. I think there was also a subtext of like, hey, you thought that Jonathan was a serial killer, but it's because you didn't get to know him. And of course, Sam in his own head, he's like, I'm not a serial killer. It would never occur to me that other people would think that I'm a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a part of it is like a measure of like, hey, perspective take is important. Part of me also, as someone who's been a people manager, it's just like, there is a weird distance you have to keep to a certain extent that makes you sound seem a little bit like a serial killer. Not a serial killer. I don't think any of my reports thought that I was a serial killer. I mean, do you do exit interviews? <laughs> have you ever seen them after they quit the company? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone can update a LinkedIn. But I, I think that it was a line to build empathy for Jonathan is the way that I mostly read it. Also that Tiffany is like a teenager. Tiffany was my favorite character by a lot. And I, I also think that she helps point us towards some of the overarching themes of the book, which was, you know, the effect of capitalism on Jonathan Forrest, where like he got so seduced by the symbols of the caretaker rather than actually being the caretaker for his family. He had the big house, but never had anybody over. And he still used the language of, oh, I, I'm doing this stuff so that I can have my family over and I can take care of them and I paid back the loans or whatever. Um, and he's using the language of being a caretaker, but without actually caring about the people that he wants to, to care for. And so there are the material symbols of success that under capitalism are the thing that ends up being worshipped rather than the, the like authentic motives behind them. Totally. And Tiffany's always talking about this. She, she basically will just tell that directly this is the effect of capital like she's got a couple speeches right ultimately like what you should be doing is something that is for the good of other people and that is where you're going to find the most joy and I think when we hear a little about sales like I can often be like ew sales is gross like you're trying to get people to spend more than they need on something they don't need but I think it comes up a couple of times from Sam's perspective but like no what's really great about sales is like you're helping someone solve a problem like they're exiting this place and I gave them a solution to it, something that they needed. Yeah. That framing is really important. In comparison to Johnny, Jonathan's relative, where he's selling a bunch of crap and trying to, like, cheat people. Yeah. What does it mean to be, like, a quote-unquote, like, ethical salesperson um, where you're actually looking out for people? Yeah. At the end, Tiffany's able to find her place in capitalism where she's like, oh, I want to throw parties. Like, I want to bring joy to people. Right. Bring people together. Throw parties. Yeah. Give them memorable experiences. That's a very Tiffany thing to find value in. 
speaking of capitalism, what do we think about the character of the housekeeper throughout the book? Yeah, so it seems like Anishka left her job at the NHS because of Britain's anti-immigrant policies, but then goes to work for a guy cleaning his house who she thinks might be a serial killer. So her ethical radar is complicated. But it's far less stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's like you also want to serve people that you feel respected by. And I think that is another thing that comes up under management philosophy, um, but also in the book where when Jonathan and Sam get into a fight around Jonathan's like, don't spend more than 150 ahead. And then Sam comes back. And he's like, I've only paid 160 ahead. And Jonathan's like, that means that everyone who comes to the party now owes $32 because of taxes. And Sam was like, well, if you just told me that would have happened, I wouldn't have gone over budget. Right. And so it showed a lack of respect, not giving him the full information. Right. Versus I think Jonathan's idea of like respect is like, I tell you something and you do what I say. As a manager, what's your perspective on that? I think the whys are important. I think that's how you build trust with people. That's probably why no one likes Jonathan. No, it's like obviously a part of teaching. You like have to say why we're doing a thing or else it's just box checking. Oh, I have a question. Yeah. What are the 10 things that never happened? Oh man, I had this thought throughout the entire (laughs) book. I was like, when is that going to come up? There were a few things about this book that I kept on being like, when is that going to happen? Because the narrative arc of a rom-com is it starts off with some, you can see what the conflict is going to be. And in this case, it's going to be when Samwise tells Jonathan that he's been lying and that he doesn't actually have amnesia. And that like a whole part of their early love story is, is a lie that only he participated in and so on. And usually that happens like in like two thirds of the way through and then you have the darkest hour and then they come out of it. But you like live in that darkest hour for, for a few pages. This one was like darkest hour comes break up, go to a seminary and then we're back. It all happens in like, I don't know, 20 pages. It was like everything was wrapped up really fast. So there were a few things where I was like, well, I'm waiting for this to happen. Like I'm waiting for the lie to come out. I'm waiting for the 10 things that never happened to be explained or like a line that would pop up and it it never it never did do you think that they're just using that to build off of other great pieces of media that have that structure in a title 10 things i hate about you most notably maybe i was also like is this supposed to be like a 10-part series oh and like the first thing that ever happened is the amnesia oh my god because this did say one of a series but 10 but 10 is a lot so, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Also, technically, the universe is called Material World. What does that mean? What does that mean? I think that is also very interesting given how, like, attempted anti-capitalist it is. Tiffany with the capitalism, yeah. Is the next one going to be about Tiffany? I'd read it. That would be an interesting thing. It's like a bunch of different takes on capitalism from a bunch of these characters' perspectives, and they each get yeah. their own love story. It's like Bridgerton. But anti-capitalist. Right. And they each have to overcome the programming of capitalism. So like Jonathan Forrest overcomes his obsession with material wealth and like hoarding hoarding that wealth and then has to return to his original reasons for doing it in the first place. Tiffany is already deprogrammed, but still, I want to see that journey. Yeah. And it's 10 things that never happened because we can never escape capitalism. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is not a real thing for Jonathan Forrest to do. I love that. I love that as a take. Yeah, no, there were not 10 things that never happened. Getting pushed into a shower, I don't, like, I, it would, it's a stretch no matter which way we go with it. I mean, the only thing that never happened is the amnesia. 
That's that was the only thing that I could think of. Yeah. Is that you thought the amnesia happened, but it didn't. Didn't happen. Presumably, ten things that never happened means you think think something happened and then it didn't. And that's the only thing that I could. But then why wouldn't you name it? This never happened. Yeah, one thing that never happened. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I took a one note I have is the line. I don't think that he was born a prick. I think that he had prickishness thrust upon him because it's a paraphrase of Shakespeare. Um, I also highlighted that line. And I think it's relevant in, in the same way that like greatness is thrust upon you. That's Richard something, right? Henry. I think it's Twelfth Night. Damn it! Yeah, the quote is, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness. And others have greatness thrust upon them. And it's from Twelfth Night. Oh. Well, I think in this case, the prickishness being thrust upon him is very specific because he goes through his whole childhood of his dad losing his job because capitalism and then him being like the poor gay kid right and how difficult that was his entire life yeah there was the whole interesting monologue when they first start warming up to each other where jonathan forrest is basically like you don't know me and sam wise is like i do know you you're somebody who's driven and ambitious and you've been told from a young age that these that that these are bad things but they're not necessarily and that was that was interesting because one i don't think that people who are driven and ambitious often get told that that's a bad thing so like i don't know about that as a as a premise but i think from his from his position with his father that there was something about being driven and ambitious where like other people were not willing to make the sacrifices that he was making and so it's seen as contrary to family values or contrary to some other values when it doesn't have to necessarily be that way but when everybody's projecting that onto him then he just becomes the thing that they're projecting onto him he becomes the prick yeah i think the ambitiousness is viewed as bad by both lower class and higher class people because lower class people are like you're basically saying that everything your dad did wasn't good enough. Right. You're trying to crawl yourself out of, like, your dad being a failure. Right. We're not good enough for you. Yeah. And then for the rich kids, it seems like they're like, oh. Well, it's like uh, the book She Gets the Girl, where the main character is, like, trying to become a doctor. But then her girlfriend, who's wealthy, is like, well, what if we just both studied English together? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the girl's like, okay, great, I will. No, 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 no. Like, that would not happen to Jonathan Forrest. Jonathan Forrest is like, no, I need some fucking money. I'm <laughs> right. studying business. Stop trying to convince me to study English. Right. And so because he can't exist in either space, he has prickishness thrust upon him. Yeah. Okay. So I think this is the part of the episode when we transition to discussing a paper two, an IB paper two question. So for those of you that haven't listened before, this is something we close episodes with. We take a question from a high school curriculum called the IB curriculum that is about high literature usually and you're expected to answer it with Hamlet and we do it and we answer it with 10 things that never happened or similar. So there is a genre of question that appears frequently on nearly every exam that asks about like the moral value of art and literature and that it makes some sort of social commentary. So I've pulled one of those for today. And the question is, for a piece of fiction to have value, it must make some social or political statement. To what extent is this assertion true based on a work that you've studied? And I'm assuming in this case, the work that we've studied is 10 things that never happened. I think that the quote from the book that kicks this idea off for me is this one from Sam, which is, in an ideal world, Karl Marx would have better hair and Christmas wouldn't be a soulless spectacle of conspicuous consumption. 
And I think that's perfect. That's a perfect place to start because this on the surface looks like it's just a Christmas rom-com, like something that would appear on Netflix after Thanksgiving where it's just a silly romp and everything's fun. But it does, like, it's it's very hard to tell a real human story without there being some sort of social commentary. And this one clearly has that strain of, this is the effects of capitalism. When capital and material signifiers of wealth or the, the society of the spectacle, when they take over and start operating like a religion in your head where you search for those significations and those like metrics for the success like how much money is in your bank account becomes a metric of success and when you start worshiping the metric of success or you start worshiping the spectacle of having the house or the car or whatever then you lose what you wanted in the first place like maybe you were pursuing that metric with the bank account number for freedom in this case jonathan forrest is not looking for individual freedom he's actually looking to to free his family to allow them to do what they want and for them to come together and this is like a very clear social commentary on the, the destructive nature of what the society of the spectacle or late stage capitalism or whatever do to you and i think there's also an element of the book that's really about respecting your workers right just respecting the people that you work with generally and like communicating well right like that was throughout this book is just having good communication and we see bad communication on a number of places jonathan's whole family jonathan as a as a as a manager because a big push that sam has with the book is like once jonathan gets to know me and gets to know the branch he's not going to want to fire any of us right and so much of the book is like figuring out who people are and that they have stories that you aren't privy to Right, this belief that once he understands a people, he'll stop respecting property as much as people. Which I think is true, but I think there's also an element of like finding the right roles for the right people and what does it take to motivate people. Many, many times Sam told Brian not to carry coffee and tea in the showroom, but it didn't. He's like, I don't think you ever told me that. Claire told me it once and now I'm never going to do it again. Yeah, and that, that's another part of like anytime you're telling a truly human story, you're going to get moments like that where all of a sudden the exploration of communication, it just comes to the surface and what good communication and respectful two-way relationships looks like. And they're going to be modeled in a lot of different ways. And good literature is always going to invite you into the complexity of that. And so that's why we see multiple examples of bad communication. Do we see multiple examples of people pursuing wealth for the wrong reasons or for the right reasons, but then, or is it just Jonathan Forrest? I think it would have been interesting if we had gotten more comparisons of the rich people that Jonathan went to school with. I actually thought at some point we were going to like, like, right, like he went on that date with that footballer. Right, true. I true. thought we were going to see a lot more of what that was like and that pressure that was like, because it seems like he was to a certain extent exclusively dating in that upper class. Yeah, I think he might be our, our one prime example. They do go to that very fancy store with all of the very expensive ornaments. And anyone who shops there probably sucks. Never mind. Everyone should have a narrative. <laughs> Everyone has a backstory that I respect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's take this back to the question. So I think we've established that this work does indeed make a social or political statement. But this doesn't actually address the question that for a work of fiction to have value, it must make. What's your hot take on that in a philosophic sense? I think it would be actually very hard to write a piece of fiction that does not make a social or political statement. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, no matter what, a work of art or li literature, art generally, whatever, it's always going to 
like basically tell you that your attention should be oriented in a very particular direction and anytime you're pointing people's attention in a direction that is itself a social statement it's saying this is something that we should value and find important and this particular book wants us to value family friendships respecting the people that you're doing authentic projects with like good communication among those things and that good communication looks like constant negotiation over nachos like that is what this book is about and that is worthy of our attention. Like, I, I agree with the, the political social statement here. Like, those things are worthy of our attention. I agree. I mean, it's obviously, like, a little bit more anti-capitalist than your traditional Christmas rom-com. Yeah. But I think even, like, the most basic Christmas rom-com is making a statement of some sort when it usually is speaking about the value of family, friendship, love, communion. All right. And so now we need to figure out what to read next. And we have never ventured into nonfiction before, but there is a book in the zeitgeist that I want to float. Mm-hmm. How about we read The Woman and Me by Britney Spears? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think there's plenty to talk about. <laughs> there's plenty to talk about. You probably know way more about the actual uh, like media coverage of these things than I do, but I feel like I still have a lot to say about it. Um, so I would be, I'd be excited to talk about that with you next month. Absolutely. Plus the audiobook is by white Michelle Williams. Which is the perfect, I mean, you know, let's, let's save our hot takes for the episode, but those, that is the perfect choice. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen and James Earl, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter or I guess X at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading The Woman in Me by Britney Spears. See you then. I feel like I got a lot of brain frog right now. Brain frog?